0: Bullshit is everywhere.
1: Bullshit is rampant. B-b-bullshit.
0: bullshit -bullshit. I want you to get up right now, and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell,
1: I'm as as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter, episode 1.9 of the Syrian Civil War series. My name is Cameron Riley. Hello, Ray. Hello. Now, tell me those words again, Ray. What is okay. uh, <clears throat> the southernmost <throat> capital city of mainland Australia? Whew,
0: I can do this. Um, uh, Melbourne. Very good, Not very good. Melbourne,
1: no, I no. was
0: fanatic. I was fanatic. Mm, uh-huh. mm, mm.
1: And, uh huh. And the capital uh, city of the state of Queensland, where I live, Ray, Brisbane. Nice, nice, and nice. yes, the, uh, oh, a, a, uh, the 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 colloquial abbreviation for oh. an Australian is an
0: <clears throat> Aussie.
1: Yes, okay. I think yes. I think you're ready, Ray. I think all of I, your training. Padawan is going to pay off. I think you'll be able to pass as a local when you come yes. out here Excellent. in a couple of months. Um, g'day. No, that was terrible. No. no <laughs> Do I
0: stretch it out? No. G'day. Yeah,
1: g'day. Is that what- no, it's... J- j- shorten it. G'day. 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 All right. All yeah, right. Close. All right. Close. Right. You're getting there. It needs a bit more work. Um, at the end of uh, episode eight of the uh, this particular series, uh, we talked about... Briefly, the uh, Cedar Revolution. We talked about the, the, uh, the Lebanese Civil War, the beginnings of it. Anyway, a bit, mm-hmm. uh, a bit of that. Uh, we talked about uh, the PLO. We talked about how uh, then in 2005 there was this huge bomb went off in uh, Beirut and uh, the, the Syrians finally pulled out. Right. Uh, whether or not they were responsible for the bomb is up for debate. They deny it, um, but they were blame for it anyway. Was it a uh, CIA plot to get them out of there? I don't know, but we're, in this episode, we're going to explore some of the evidence for that. But before we do that, let's go back and talk a little bit more about Hafez al-Assad, father of Bashir al-Assad. Bashar al-Assad. Um, now... Obviously, uh, as we know, the Syrians hate the Israelis. Well, they hate the, mm-hmm. the the concept of Israel. I'm not sure that they hate all of the people who live in Israel. Like People often say that I hate Americans. Obviously not true. My right. argument is against the industrial military complex that runs the United States and uh, how they engineer American foreign policy and what that does to the people of the world, not with Americans themselves, who I know by far and wide I'm mostly yeah. relatively ignorant of what the industrial military complex is doing. Uh, now, whether or not that's, I don't know, a justification or yeah. not is a matter of for another debate.
0: And, and I think it's, uh, incumbent upon me, the American in the show, to say that American foreign policy is not about making the world a better place, um, democracy for all, even though that's what we are taught in middle school and high school. It's the, it's literally to, um, strengthen American control, influence, power, what have you, um, throughout the world, um, obviously for, as far as we think of it, for American security. But again, we're not out there trying to right all the wrongs and, and help everybody to have a, a country like ours. We're pretty much just trying to control everything that happens outside of our borders as well, just so we can be more secure. So don't, you know, all all the pro, pro brainwashing, I guess brainwashing you got in high school or whatever, just realize that, yeah, it's it's about us trying to control everything. So we can do whatever we want, wherever we want, and everybody will listen to us. That's pretty much what it's about, sphere of influence, except for we're going for the whole damn planet.
1: It's about economics and security, like mm-hmm. we've said in our, this show and the other show over and over again. So anyway, uh, despite Assad's position on Israel and his alliance with Iran and his support for Hezbollah, Hafez mm. hasn't always been on the U.S.'s enemy list. They have had periods, both in Hafez's era and also in Bashar's era, where Syria cooperated with the U.S. For example, way back in 1990, those of you who are old, like Ray and I, will remember <laughs> that Saddam Hussein's Iraq invaded and occupied Kuwait. And the United States quickly mobilized an alliance, including Australia was sort of a small part of that. And various Western European countries were part of that, some Arab states, to go in and expel the Iraqi troops from Kuwait. Now, officially, the United States uh, led that action in order to liberate Kuwait and Mm -hmm. protect Saudi Arabia from what they thought might be uh, uh, the next invasion that Saddam would go and take. He's going to go and take the oil. We could explain why Saddam went to Kuwait and how the Kuwaitis were uh, drilling his oil and all this kind of stuff, but that's a topic for another conversation.
0: Now, do, um, supposedly, do you remember during the war where uh, Saddam, who said uh, Saddam said that um, that he had the permission of George Bush, the first one, to go in? So he was confused by the reaction of the United States. So obviously, a little bit of throwing dust in, in, uh, in, the, in the eyes of the press of the world, whatever. But clearly, um, I, I just can't imagine that happening. But again, he was really he was trying to he you was trying can't... to be a big man on the stage. Um, he wanted to said, "Okay, you don't like what I did. Let's all get together. Let's have a big peace conference. Let's talk about all the issues of the Middle East. Let's work them out, and then maybe I can leave Kuwait." But uh, Bush said, "No, we're not going to do any of that. We're not going to have any talks. I'm already sending forces over. We're building up. Get out of there while you can." So again, he he tried to do what others strong men have done, but Bush wasn't going for it, and. To me, it just seemed obvious. Look, you don't send a whole, you know, hundreds of thousands of men over with supplies if you're just bluffing. Bush, uh, Bush was going to go in from the get go, and there was nothing Saddam could do except for pull out to change that. But like you said, we were there to free Kuwait, but obviously America had ulterior motives as well. Since we're going to invade Iraq, maybe we can get rid of this guy and put someone in who, you know, who likes us a little bit more. So America had its. It's uh, supposed reasons, and then it had its real reasons.
1: So really, after all the shows that we've done in the Cold War series and this series, you can't believe that the United States might have used a little bit of bait and switch on Saddam.
0: By saying it's okay to go after Kuwait and then use that as an excuse, that's not impossible, but that's a pretty tall order. But after everything we've read and everything we've discussed, hell, anything is possible at this point.
1: (laughs) Well, it may have even been possible that someone in Uh. H.W. Bush's administration gave someone in Saddam's administration the old nod and the wink, Um, but then it backfired. I don't know. But let's remember where this fits into the timeline. Let's remember that throughout the 80s, the U.S., uh, had been funding and arming Saddam as their mm-hmm. partner in the Middle East to fight a war against Iran. So, uh, you know, there was a very close relationship between Iraq and the United States. Uh, they, they, mm. were, they were partners. So it, 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 there are two possible scenarios here. One is that Saddam said, I'm going to also invade Kuwait without American approval and fuck America what are they going to do about it or the other major alternative is that he was given the he checked with his partners slash masters and said hey listen and they said yeah yeah that's fine go ahead and then when he did now at the time in 1991 so I was 20 in 1990 I, I had a bunch of Lebanese friends I was living in Melbourne a bunch of Lebanese friends I used to hang out with Saturday nights we'd go. I go over to their place. We would sit around. They would make this awesome Lebanese coffee uh, in a saucepan on top of a little uh, burner, uh, gas-fired burner out in the garage. That had like for every teaspoonful of this Lebanese coffee, it was like Turkish coffee and you know, it's powdered, strong as fuck stuff. Every <laughs> teaspoon of coffee there'd be like six teaspoons of sugar. In there, oh my God. you could put a you you could put a spoon in it at the end, and the spoon would just stand straight <laughs> up. Right, this stuff was thick; it was like concrete. Damn. It was awesome. But we'd sit around and we would talk politics, and and right. it was part of my early political awakening. Talking to these guys who were all sort of my age, but you know their their parents had, had emigrated to Australia from Lebanon. They still had a lot of family back there. So we were talking about uh, the the Civil War. We were talking about what was going on in the Middle East. And I remember them telling me at the time that uh, Saddam had been given permission by the Americans to invade Kuwait. uh, But it was a ruse, an excuse for the U.S. to then go in and take him out. Uh, Why they would want to take him out at this point when he'd been their partner in Iran, who knows. But... I remember at the time going, that's crazy conspiracy theory stuff, but then that's you know sort of started my journey of starting to read up about this stuff and and uh, try and get a, an understanding of what was going on. but sorry you you want to interject
0: I d- let me just run um, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> run something by you <coughs> Excuse me, I am so sorry, was that it? I, I was I was reading this book. hold on, damn it, let me get some youngmoncello, know, hold on. okay, everything's fine now. Uh, I was reading this book by Daniel Pipes. It's called Damascus Courts the West, Syrian Politics, 1989 to 1991. And he had a quote uh, in there that I thought was interesting. He was comparing Saddam Hussein to Hafez. And he says, Saddam's ambitions know no limit. He seeks to become both the greatest leader in Iraqi history and a giant on the world stage. His dreams of glory distort practical decision-making. In contrast, Assad knows his limitations and acts within their parameters. The conquest of Lebanon and the perpetuation of Alawi uh, rule are quite enough for him for now. So I just thought that was interesting. Someone saying, you know, that because when um, we get to, uh, when we talk more about Afez, I mean, like you said, I think in the last show, I mean, this guy was cool, calm. He would think things through almost like a Caesar. He would think many steps ahead. And then on the other side of it, you got Saddam, who just seemed to be very emotional, very uh, grandiose. And maybe he read too many history books or listened to too many history podcasts. And he saw himself in that light of a great man. And he was just going to go for it. And so, again, who, who knows what the real truth is. But I, but I just enjoyed the uh, the juxtaposition of these two very influential men.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've got some stuff, I think, in my notes later on about the uh, differences between the two as well. Okay. So in uh, February of 1991, President George H.W. Bush gave a speech calling on Iraqis to rise up against Hussein.
0: Yeah, like that was going to happen.
1: Now, the the U.S. at the time apparently did have a policy of overthrowing Hussein and putting another strongman into power there, somebody who was more ready to accept um, the U.S.'s uh, will. Mm -hmm. For some reason, there must have been some sort of falling out between Hussein and the U.S. either before or after the Kuwaiti invasion. Now, one of the big issues at the time, though, remember this is just around the time of the collapse of the USSR, Gorbachev and, and, and Perestroika and all that kind of stuff, <clears throat> was was whether or not the Soviet Union would intervene to support uh, Iraq if right. the US were trying to overthrow the government there and put someone else in? I mean, would the Soviet would, would this turn into another Korea? Would this turn into another Vietnam? This is only mm-hmm. sort of fifteen years after the the Vietnam War ended, so that it was really a test in some ways. Uh, on behalf of the U.S. to see what can we do in terms of regime change in the Middle East uh, without the Soviets getting involved. And as it turned out, the Soviets didn't get involved. They had their own shit going on, a lot of internal (laughs) turmoil, collapse of the economy, collapse of the political structure. And so uh, Hafez, at the time, could see the handwriting on the wall, Mm -hmm. even though... He had no love for the United States and he had no love for Saddam Hussein, as we know, uh, because of the Ba'ath Party split and the Iran-Iraq war, is friendly with Iran, Iraq invaded Iran or attacked Iran. Anyway, uh, in 1991, Hafez decides to switch sides and jump on board with the U.S. Wow. Now, let's remember, Lebanese civil war... Has just ended officially. Seventy-five to nineteen ninety, right. Syria, for the the majority of that time, is on the side of the PLO, fighting the Israelis and fighting the Americans and the French, in Lebanon. Now in nineteen ninety, switches sides. He says to nice. H W George H W Bush, "Sure, you, you need help invading Iraq? Absolutely.
0: <laughs> I'm your man.
1: Yeah. So he joined." The Gulf War One Coalition sent 14,500 troops to participate in Operation Desert Storm.
0: That That's pretty smart. I mean, you would have to be, and because it's a dictatorship, he does not like he has to check with anybody. Sure, he might piss some people off, but he runs that country and through his security forces, he controls everything. So if he makes the decision, that's it. That's the country's official policy. And it would take someone like a dictator to make such, you've got to think, an unpopular Move, but he can do whatever he wants, and it's a very smart decision at the time because when you have hundreds of thousands of American troops in the Middle East, they're not at home; they're there. I mean, if if Iraq falls, you know, who might be next? That was a very, that was a very smart move on his part. Well, if you look at it, there's there's a number of
1: different ways I think to look at this. Uh, Number, you you can say that this is an Arab state attacking another Arab state, which Mm -hmm. isn't good look. A good look, particularly when the Syrians. Uh, for 25 30 years at this point the Baath party in Syria anyway has been talking about pan-arabism unifying all of the Arab states together now he's joining in on an attack of one of those guys which is being led by the great enemy uh, the United States who are the major at this stage uh, supporters of Israel country mm. that that has you know taken a large chunk of Palestine away from the Palestinians, so at that level, not a good look on another level, um, whereas Syria remember, is a Sunni majority country run by the Alawites, friendly to the Shia in Iran, Iraq was a Shia majority country run by the Sunni minority, of which Damn. saddam Saddam was fairly secular. Again, he was a bath party guy, but he was a Sunni technically, so you could you could see it as well. We're going in to help our Shia brothers and sisters who are you know friendly with Iran, but the the Sunni majority in uh, Syria can't have been happy about him attacking a Sunni-led government. Right. So, but then, of course, and then you know, he's got this whole other thing going on. Well, well, the USSR isn't going to come to our aid if we're next on the US's hit list, as they were, and we'll talk about that soon. Uh, so he's trying to curry favor with the United States. We go, oh yeah, we love you guys. Anything you need us for, we are yours. Oh, that whole Lebanese civil war thing. Let's That's for- water under the bridge. Let bygones be go bygones. Forget about that.
0: And just, just one correction, uh, America is the great Satan. Um, if, you know, if you're going to trash us, you know, just get it right. But um, yeah, so if I guess for Iran, we're the great Satan. So we worked really hard for that title. So I just wanted to put that out there.
1: Yes, thanks. So yeah. in 1991, uh, at the invitation of in the United States, Israel, Syria, and some of the other Arab countries met in Madrid to discuss a peace plan what would eventually be known as the Oslo Agreement, because Oslo is in Madrid. No, it's not. got uh, nothing to do with Madrid. Uh, Oslo, of course, is uh, the capital of Norway. But, right. hey, you know, let's not what get adds? bogged down into the details of that. Um, yeah. Now, the Oslo Agreement basically called for the creation of a Palestinian state, in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, and for Arab recognition of Israel.
0: Ooh, that's a big one.
1: It was a big one. Um, The PLO, Yasser Arafat, everyone's involved. You know, they're going to try and uh, figure out a settlement here. Now, particularly of interest to Syria was that Syria wanted Israel to return Golan, or Golan Heights, as it's some Times called. Remember, this was the this was Syrian territory that Israel took in the sixty seven war. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, now that kind of failed that com- that discussion. So did the Oslo process. Now this this whole peace deal is something that uh, harkens back to Kissinger's intervention during the OPEC crisis. Right, uh, right. 15, 17 years earlier, whenever that was. Um, early to mid seventies, so uh, finally they sit down, but it doesn't work. It all falls apart, and we don't have time to go into that. Maybe we'll do that when we talk about Israel in a in a future series. We do the whole Israel thing, I think.
0: Okay,
1: um, but here's the interesting thing about this is that Assad, up until this point, had positioned himself as the leader of what was known as the Rejection Front. This is when the whole Kissinger thing fell apart in the seventies. Right, Syria uh, said from that point on they were rejecting any negotiations, any discussions with Israel. But now, <laughs> after the Soviet, after the Soviets have collapsed, and uh, the US has you know sent hundreds of thousands of troops under Storm and Norman into Iraq, right. Assad's like. Oh, negotiation, love negotiation. (laughs) Nothing I like better than to sit down over a cup of tea for 12 (laughs) hours and negotiate with Israel. So, just I I think this is interesting because it shows that, you know, the the, the ideology with guys like this, as with the United States or any other country, is fairly mungible and flexible. Uh, Mm -hmm. People can be enemies one day and, and be willing to be friends and partners the next. Uh, you can decry that someone is a brutal dictator one day and then be selling him arms and supplies <laughs> the next and partnering on stuff. It's not really about ideology. It, it gets sold to us, the masses, as right. principles and ideologies and morals and ethics and what's right and what's wrong and what's you know what God Good says evil. or Allah yeah. says, all that kind of stuff. But really, at the end of the day, it comes down to... Ha- where are your interests best served at this point in time? Your interests being economics and security. What what is in our best interests in the foreseeable future? To, to be right. the enemy of this country or to be friends with this country? It's really got nothing to do with their history or what they're doing or how they're oppressing their own people. It's really about real politic, as it's known, just gotcha. sort of brutal you know, uh, whatever you want to call it. What's what's a good way of describing real politic Um, for the kids listening out there? Mm. It's about uh, just practicalities, brutal practicalities in the moment and, and not really any sort of ideology backing it up.
0: Yeah, keeping it real, keeping it real, and uh, yeah, um, street cred, that kind of stuff. I just find it interesting that on the last episode we were talking about Hafez, and you said I think you said something. This guy wasn't a playboy; he wasn't out there. You know, he was married, he had kids, he he wasn't um, he wasn't this fanatic foaming at the mouth. He seemed to just enjoy being in charge. But the point is, like like you're saying, like I'm the president of Syria, and yes, I've I've done a lot of things to get here, and I'm continually keeping the people down, but I really, really, really would like to keep on being the president of Syria and having a pretty nice life, you know, everything that comes with that, and so I'm willing to do whatever, I'm willing to make deals with what whoever, and I'm willing to talk to anybody or, or whatever it takes so I can keep my position, I can keep those who support me in power and making money as well, and that's what it all comes down to, everything else is bullshit.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was... <laughs> He was willing to talk. In fact, uh, you know, he he composed a song uh, that he oh, sent good. he sent to the Israelis uh, to, to try and get them to the negotiating table. That's how far he was willing to go. Good move. Of course, girl is is just you know poet poetic license metaphor yeah. for Israel.
0: For, well, actually, it's a metaphor for and uh, another ways for uh, security and um, uh, economics and security. But it's harder to rhyme those. Easier to go with girl. Eminem
1: yeah. could yeah. probably do it, but uh, <laughs> he could do it
0: he, when yeah. he's not high or when he's high. He could do it. He could do Her, it. Hafez,
1: though, not not that good as a as a rhyme smith.
0: If someone could Photoshop a picture of a Hafez with a mullet <laughs> and a guitar, we'd really appreciate that. Send that to us. Not that we know what our email address is. A mullet? A no. mullet? I don't know. I'm trying. I'm reaching here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, now, around right about this time, uh, Hafez is looking for a successor. Who is going to take over? Now, we, we need to go back a little bit in time here and, and tell a bit about the sort of family intrigue in the Assad family. Back in 1983, Hafez was suffering from heart problems and he was uh, going to go uh, overseas to, to you know, get some special medical assistance. Mm-hmm. And he leaves behind a six-member committee to run right. the country. But one of, the, one of the people who wasn't on that committee was his brother, Rafat, who was supposed to be the next in line, his successor, mm. the heir to the Assad uh, monarchy, even though it wasn't Uh-oh. technically a monarchy. Um, now, Rafat, people may remember, was is sort of the, the head general, I guess, of Syria right. also at the time. He was the guy that... Was responsible for the Hamar massacre in 1982. The year before this whole heart problem things goes on.
0: He was the bad cop to Hafez's good cop. Everybody <laughs> feared um, him, and so yeah, he, he he did all the dirty work. But you got the sense that he liked. The power, the, uh, the, coru- the corruption, that kind of stuff. So while his brother's sitting behind his desk thinking, you know, on the telephone or whatever, this guy's the one who's out doing things. So it was a good cop, bad cop. But like you said, for some reason, he's not put on the committee. Uh, and, I, and I just want to throw this out real quick. On November 13th, after he visited his brother in the hospital, Rifat uh, reportedly announced his candidacy for the president. Uh, as he didn't think that Assad would be able to continue running the country, and when he doesn't get the support of Assad's inner circle, he made them very lavish, he made very lavish promises to win them over. So he's like, "Look, I hear you. You're telling me no, just because I'm not coming with with the right offer." So he makes some incredible, uh, credible deals. But as we're about to find out, it's not so much about the money. It's about um, the his Assad's um, supporters first want to find out: Is he going to live? Is he going to die? Is he going to be? you know, reduced to being in a bed his entire life, they're going to wait and see what their what their leader is, is going, if he's going to endure.
1: Well, the very fact that when Hafez had to leave the country, he didn't put Rafat on this council is sort of evidence <laughs> there's, that... There's your sign. Yeah, that uh, <laughs> he doesn't really trust Rafat to uh, do the right thing. The people that he did put on the council were Sunni Loyalists to Hafez, mm. so not Alawites that might uh, be uh, loyal, Alawite generals or whatever, loyal to Rafat. Most of the officer corps of Syria at the time were Alawi. Um, and so the, sort of the lines were drawn in the sand here, and several of the high-ranking officers began rallying around Rafat, urging him to basically executed coup d'etat while his uh, brother was gone. And as you say, they, they were like, oh, he's so sick. He's probably, he's almost dead. He's pretty much weekend at Bernie's. We've been carrying him around right. for the last couple of weeks. No one really noticed. Um, now, Rafat at this point has more than 55,000 troops that are loyal to him. He's got mm. tanks, artillery, aircraft, holo- yeah, helicopters. Yeah, helicopters. Holoc- They're hologram Helicopters. helicopters. Helicopters, and he began to literally take control of Damascus, setting up checkpoints and roadblocks. He had people putting up posters of him in state buildings. These <sighs> guys were running around disarming the uh, regular troops, arresting wow. soldiers who weren't part of the coup. So it was pretty much an all-out coup. Um, right. But Hefez didn't die. I think Rafat probably thought that Hefez... Was going to die. Maybe he had like a, a small heart attack or something, and he thought, oh, that's it. He's gone. He's done yeah. for. Yeah. I'm just going to assume power while I have just the
0: swoop
1: chance. Right in. But it was not to be. So uh, Hefez comes back. Rafat is called a traitor Ooh, and man. is exiled from Syria. And how he's still alive, Rafat, and what? he's. <laughs> Say what? Say what? Yeah. He's uh, living in... Well, sort of spends his time between London and Paris. Why wouldn't you? uh, He's... Let's see. How old is he now? He's 79. Still going.
0: He's still partying. Uh, uh,
1: Now, apparently, he is quite close friends with King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia. Uh Uh-huh. In fact... King Abdullah, at one point, was married
0: to a sister of Rafat's wife. Wow. So there's some serious connections there. Hey, I just want to mention one thing real quick. During that week or so, when um, Hafez is in the hospital, there's this thing that's called the poster war that happens in Syria. Um, The the defense... The defense companies went around and they replaced posters of Hafez with Rafat. And then the security service that was still loyal to Hafez went around and tore them down and put up posters of Hafez. So they were just literally following each other, tearing down posters of one leader, putting up the other brother, that kind of stuff. And that went on for about a week until Assad's health improved. But you can just imagine these men with guns, tanks, helicopters and everything. But pretty much they were battling on the streets through putting up posters uh, and again, all that doesn't matter. As soon as the leader regains his health, all that kind of stuff quickly comes to an end.
1: A war for the minds of the people.
0: Exactly. Of course,
1: the big question is did Hafez really recover and come back, or did he die and they replaced him with an actor who was almost right. a, a body double, And he was being. <laughs> I think I, I saw a movie like that once, I think, with Kevin. Didn't
0: suppose. Right. <laughs> What's his
1: face? Didn't Saddam Hussein
0: cost- supposedly cost- have body doubles? Body doubles?
1: Oh, yeah, all these guys had body doubles, yeah. Damn. Well, I need- I've got at least half a dozen body doubles running around, man. I mean, come on. You're all the, the fans just wanting to harass, take my clothes off all the time. I don't have right. time for that shit. i got research to do. <laughs> Cover your ass. Um, now, uh, Yosef Bodansky, who is the director of the U.S. Congressional Task Force on Terrorism and Unconventional Warfare... Or katofu, as they like to refer to it. Yeah, I'm with katofu. Is that like a kind of tofu? No, it's not a kind of tofu. Yeah. He is on record as saying that Rafat enjoys the support of both the Saudis and America. So this guy, let's remember, brutal, brutal military dictator when he was in Syria, before he was exiled. Uh, now is getting a lot of support. In what form, I don't really know. But yeah. Uh, yeah, there are there have been suggestions that the US would like to see him. If they have to have an Assad in control, they would like to see Rafat be that guy
0: because he's their guy. And but, you get the sense he's not as smart as his brother. <laughs> Better to have a, a loyal dumb dog. And, anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Now,
1: after... Rafat was run out of Syria. Hafez's next choice for successor was his
0: eldest son, Basil. That's what you do. Now, as far as Basil is concerned, I mean, if you got to. This guy was everything his father could possibly want. He was good-looking. He was a paratrooper. Uh, he, he didn't have the same mentality that his father did. He, uh, he liked fast cars. He did keep a mistress. He spoke Russian. He was friends with all the sons of the other, um, the royals throughout the region. So he was being well-groomed to take over, and he was everything pretty much his father could hope for. Alas, fate had different plans.
1: I've actually got a clip of uh, Basil here This is Typical <laughs> Absolutely typical The kind of ass
0: <laughs> I had to put up with from you people You punts in here Expecting to be Weighted on hand and foot While well, I'm trying to run a hotel here Have you any idea of how much there is to do Do you ever think of that Of course not. You're
1: too busy sticking your noses into every corner, poking about for things to complain about, aren't you? Well, let me tell you something. This is exactly how Nazi Germany started. And I'll with nothing better to do than to cause trouble. Well, I've had 15 years of pandering to the likes of you,
0: and I've had enough. I've had it. Come on, pack your bags and get out.
1: That's actually uh, that's a real recording of uh, Basil uh, <laughs> at, at some point. I don't know why. Um, so, yeah, his eldest son, Basil, he's going to be the success. Unfortunately, Basil dies in a car crash in Six. 1994. Yeah. Now, sounds suspicious to you, the dying in the car crash?
0: Is it a bit of a Princess Diana car crash there? Ooh. Now, I heard he was on his way to the airport. He, he liked to race, so he's driving fast. His chauffeur, if you will, was actually in the back seat. He was going to drive the car back from the airport. Chauffeur's in the back seat with supposedly his seatbelt on. Uh, Basil does not have a seatbelt on because he's um, he's young and dumb and full of cum. And he just knows he's not <laughs> going to wreck. But something happens. He does wreck. He does die. The, the chauffeur doesn't die. Um, again, who... That's just so. That's just so weird. You've got to think a, lo- a lot of different options. A lot of different things could have happened.
1: Yeah, I went looking to see if there was any sort of sniff of a conspiracy behind that. I didn't find anything, but yeah, it certainly sounds. Uh, yeah, I mean, car crashes happen all the time. Let's be honest. Uh, yeah. But still, yeah, next in line dies in a car crash. So anyway, this forces Hafez yeah. to turn to his third choice, and there's nothing like being the third choice. You know how that feels, Ray. Uh, Would you, you quit bring up Vegas? No, well I was thinking about it just as a host for this podcast. I, I looked at everybody else, no one else was available, and so I had to you know fall back on you once again. Number uh,
0: three. Number three. <laughs> Woo! Who does number three work for?
1: <laughs> his third choice is his younger son, Bashar Al Assad, who at that time had no practical political experience. I think of Bashar as young Michael Corleone. He right. uh, you know, I never wanted this for you, Michael, thought uh, one day you would be uh, I think I've done that gag before with him. Yeah, he never wanted him to be uh, involved right. in the family business. Bashar was at the time in London studying to become an ophthalmologist or an eye mm-hmm. doctor in English. Right. Uh, and and the the sort of announcement that he was next in line obviously uh, not taken well by some people in Syria in the ruling class. Here's this kid; he's got zero experience with politics or the military. Um, but anyone who sort of complained got demoted. So eventually, people figured out: well, is what the boss wants is what the boss gets.
0: <laughs> Now, I thought it was interesting because there there are men who are going to be sacked, who are going to be <clears throat> asked to retire. And they've been around since 1970 or earlier. I mean, they've known Hafez for quite some time and they're dismissed from office. Uh, not so much um, because they're going to be disloyal um, to the current or future head, but they didn't quite, I mean, uh, Hafez didn't quite think they would back him enough. And he knows that when he dies, there could potentially be a lot of chaos in this country. Who knows what Rafat's going to do? So if you even look like you he were hesitating to support his son, you, uh, you've you got the gold watch, hopefully you got to keep your head, and you were retired to a nice life somewhere. But they were literally cleaning house, and, and he was going to make this happen.
1: Now, a bit like in Rome, uh, around about the time of our old mate uh, Augustus, the Syrian the, the constitution at the, the time said you had to be 34 to be president. Right. And at this point in time, in the mid-90s, Bashar is 29, 30. So the Syrian parliament lowers the age that you have to be to be president. Because a kid, Afaz has got serious health problems. So, yeah. so they, they don't know how long he's got left. He does need someone to be ready to step in. So they have to adjust the constitution to lower <laughs> the age of a president down to 30.
0: Is that hard to do in a dictatorship? Yeah, apparently not so
1: much. No, not that hard. <laughs>
0: I'm going to be president. Yeah.
1: So let's talk a little bit about Hefez's personality as we're getting to the end of his reign. Um, Even his enemies, people like uh, US ambassadors and diplomats, seem to agree that he had an exceptional degree of political foresight. Mm -hmm. Very, very smart, cunning, long-term thinker, obviously was able for you know thirty odd years to uh, maintain control of, as a member of a religious minority who had been uh, oppressed themselves for centuries yeah. was able to control rem- uh, ma- remain in control of, of a fairly agitated agitatable is that a word uh <laughs> country. With a lot, a lot of enemies, you know, there was a lot of internal civil strife. Yeah. Uh, so he was pretty good. He, he was described as cerebral and reserved, a guy who plotted his moves with great deliberation.
0: I had to play play chess against him.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So. You know, this is—he's not like your loud-mouth, blustering uh, dictator. He reminds me, in many ways, of the depiction of uh, our old mate Uncle Joe Stalin that we pick up in the Cold War. Uh, yeah. Even the British and the Americans who met with him at Yalta—they're writing in their diaries. Man, this guy is—he's like just the motherfucking negotiator. Yeah. He uh,
0: gravitas, yeah,
1: yeah. He can play—he can play his hand like uh, like no one else. He, he's quiet when he wants to be quiet, loud when he wants to be loud. He's got everyone wrapped around his fingers.
0: Well, I love the fact that Stalin and Hafez, I mean, they would just let you talk. You, you spill your guts, you put it out, you get out your position or whatever, and then they react. I mean, this, this guy was just cool and calculating to the nth degree, and obviously he made it work as he controlled this country for quite some time.
1: Uh, so the first sort of uh, characterization of him in terms of his personality traits is this cerebral, reserved, bookish guy like you said before, like to just sit behind his desk, did most of his business by the phone. He's like an accountant running right. the country. But the other side of him is, if you back him into a corner, motherfucker right. will throw, throw down. Uh, as we saw with the Hamar massacre in 82, or you know, in this fight with the Israelis over Lebanon for 15 years, didn't give up and could fight as dirty as anyone and was, could be as brutal as any of these guys as well.
0: Yeah, he wasn't going to grab a pistol and run out there and lead forces and shoot you himself. He would call and make, give the order. But the point is, you are equally dead, and he has just had an obstacle removed. So, yeah, this guy, when he does commit, he commits completely.
1: Now, even though he started out in the military, remember, he was like the head of the Air Force yeah. before, before the coup d'etat where coup. the Baath party came to power. Um, once he became president, rarely seen in a uniform. Even uh, when he was doing public stuff, just dressed in a suit.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, Ne never got up uh, on a balcony to uh, give long speeches to the crowd. We, you know, we think of Fidel Castro always was seen in his battle fatigues. Now, Fidel's justification for that was, well, we're still at war, we're still <laughs> fighting, we're still fighting the war against the great satan so um i'm i'm in military gear because that i'm always prepared that was his sort of you know that was the the symbolism of him always being in his battle fatigues until he retired then you only ever saw him in adidas tracksuit but uh it was <laughs> he he dressed down like tony soprano uh <laughs> but before then it was always no listen we're at war i'm dressed i'm dressed for war all day every day i'm ready to go got a gun got my fatigues on I'm ready to get back down into the Sierra Maestra, man and, and uh, <laughs> kill some kill some Americans uh, but Hafez always dressed in a suit look like an accountant or a businessman uh, now you compare that obviously in this case with Saddam Saddam always seen in a uh, general's uniform even though never served in the Iraqi military in his life
0: pansy <laughs> yeah yeah exactly
1: Um, So, when you have the gravitas, you don't need to show it off. When you don't have it, you need to pretend that you have it, right? Mm
0: -hmm. You turn it up to 11,
1: yeah. But, listen, you know, to give Saddam his credit too, he ran Iraq uh, for decades as well, fairly effectively and efficiently. So, let's let's not pretend that uh, he was inferior to Hafez. Right.
0: Um,
1: He died on the end of a rope, but he... Outlived Hafez um, I guess he That's true. barely barely, but he outlived him by a couple of years now as you mentioned before, affairs, uh lived a relatively dull life, wife, children, no sort of crazy golden uh toilets in uh, <laughs> or, or massive yachts or parties. he didn't live this extravagant ridiculous uh, Tony, not Tony Soprano, uh, Tony Montana kind of life. Uh, You know, it was all about power and running the country, I guess it seems for this guy. It wasn't about luxury. It wasn't about living the high life. It wasn't about glory or or the admiration of the people. There were a couple of statues to him and that kind of stuff, but it it, it was really about just running the country.
0: Yeah, he, he, I mean, he was certainly ambitious, don't get us wrong, but once he had power, he pretty much devoted himself to maintaining that power, and he was very um, practical in, in his application of doing whatever it took to to maintain his power. I think he's like the Emperor Palpatine, I'm in charge, I don't need a bunch of parties, cocaine and hookers and stuff like that, I just enjoy being in charge and I will do whatever it takes to maintain this for myself, my family, uh, the other Alawites, and that is what I'm going to do.
1: Yeah, he reminds me in many ways of guys like Napoleon. Mm -hmm. For people who haven't heard the Napoleon series I did with J. David Markham, you know, Sir Sir David. Yes, Sir J. David Markham. Once uh, once Napoleon came to power, it wasn't about wealth or luxury or any of that kind of stuff. He worked 20 hours a day, uh, every day, seven days a week. He was at his desk uh, dictating. Uh, two or three bloody missives at a time to different secretaries. It was all about work. And and he, like a fez, was able to stay in control for as long as he did, I think just due to his superior intelligence. These, These two guys were generally, it appears, smarter than everyone else around them, highly intelligent, highly effective, huge work ethic, Uh, And were trying to run their country effectively and, and, and build up a strong country, strong economically, strong militarily, so they could hold their own geopolitically. Right. Should I continue? I was giving you an opportunity to interject.
0: Oh no, here. I would I would I mean you compared him to Napoleon. I was gonna say, like Caesar, how many times did we hear about Caesar dictating two or three or four letters at, at the same time, just having different scribes around going, Okay, this, this, and this I mean there's just this I've always I've always been jealous of people like that, just the tremendous energy it would take to constantly apply yourself. Now, because we've, we've t- talked about Mark Antony, uh, just partying, you know, the hookers, you know, supposedly the chariot pulled by lions, who knows. But this, these guys, they just took it very seriously. Yes, they wanted power, but they also took it seriously and they were trying to take care of their country. There is something commendable in that.
1: Well, oh, I don't know about commendable, but it is a personality type. I don't know about Caesar, though. I get the impression that Caesar didn't like governing. He didn't stay in Rome very long. He was always like, "Oh yeah. fuck, I've been no, here for as far three as months. Work- I've had enough of this. Right. I'm out."
0: Get the fuck. Yeah, no. Just as far as the work ethic, I mean, he was always dictating letters. It drove people crazy. But just, just, just the kind of energy and focus, I just, I just find astounding.
1: Mm. Yes, I've, I've noticed Ray that uh, your work ethic is uh, not, not really in the, the the league of Napoleon or Caesar. I've come Thank to discover you. this. <laughs> Heather tells me that too. <laughs> like, really? You know, 20 seconds, that's it. You're crapped out. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I'm older now. I used to be 25. Anyway. Now,
1: uh, visitors uh, who, who met with affairs over the decades described him as being uh, very, very charming. He mm. apparently had a quite sardonic sense of humor was often uh, shaken by gusts of silent laughter. Loved to laugh, old Hafez. Like Stalin. He, he, he Stalin just kept loved end. to
0: laugh. Kept, oh, yeah. It was what? an internal laugh. It was an internal laugh.
1: Now, uh, we have to remember, though, that uh, Syria had been under emergency law since 1963, which effectively suspended most of the constitutional protections that the citizens had. Yes, we've got a constitution. It's no, it's not, in, it's not in effect right now, but we have one. It's in a Don't case. say, yeah, you can't say we're a dictatorship. We've got a constitution. It's just been suspended for 30 years, for 37 mm-hmm. years. Uh, now, uh, they, you know, they were under a state of kind of emergency law for a lot of that period. As we've talked about, there are genuine aspects to this. You know, before the Ba'ath Party came to power, as we know, they they had more coups in the country than any other country in the Middle East.
0: Right. They were coup-rich. <coughs> coup after, the,
1: <laughs> after the French left. But, uh, you know, uh, on the other hand, you have to see that this was an excuse for them to maintain emergency law, which basically gave Hafez unlimited authority to restrict individual freedoms, to detain people when national security or public safety were deemed to be at risk. In many ways, you know, I'll, I'll uh, acknowledge this, like the Castros in Cuba. Uh, yes, they have genuine reasons to declare that they have emergency law. They don't, they don't actually call it that. But they have been uh, attacked directly or indirectly, militarily mm-hmm. or economically, by the U.S., since 19, whatever it was, 60, um, through economic uh, means, if not, you know, assassination attempts and, and Bay of Pigs invasion attempts and all that kind of stuff. So there are genuine reasons to say, listen, we are not a country that has the luxury of uh, the, the, the basic sort of freedoms that people want and deserve, even though we believe in them. I'm not sure if he did believe in them but you could say even if we do believe in them we are under attack right now and look at the United States as a classic example after 9/11 oh, yeah. all of these new laws the Patriot Act etc were passed that that trampled on basic a lot of basic civil rights uh, habeas corpus etc cetera, etc cetera, because and it was justified with well fuck all that sort of you know civil rights stuff we're under attack right.
0: So if, it's, yeah, what, what, if 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 I'm sorry, I was just going to say what the the argument was what what good is civil rights going to do you if we're you know if we're um attacked by other countries or whatever, or if the economy collapses and suddenly we have chaos everywhere, you have to decide your priorities and survival, uh, the government was deciding this for the people. the survival obviously is the number one thing so if it's justified
1: for the United States to make that argument in times like that then you have to acknowledge that uh, countries that are torn with coups and in, in civil strife uh, constantly, like Syria, may also be able to make an argument. Not saying that the argument would hold up under uh, right. scrutiny, but
0: it's an argument. Anyway. cool, That's what I was going for. Coupful. Syria was very coupful. Mm-hmm. I'm finished.
1: Uh, thank you. Uh, so yeah, so they've been under emergency laws in '63. It also allowed suspects to be tried and sentenced in special secret state security courts outside of the criminal justice system. Uh, a they bit would disappear. like, yeah, a bit like again, the United States has been doing for the last sixteen, seventeen years, uh, which we'll talk about uh, soon in the show too. Ghost detainees. And mm. uh, you know, Gitmo and enhanced interrogation techniques, and people disappearing into CIA black sites. Anyway, we'll get into that. Um, so Assad's government had had argued that these sorts of harsh measures were necessary to defend Syria from plots by their rivals in the region, internally and externally, predominantly Israel. Yeah. of course, and the United States uh, with Israel as its proxy, maybe also Saudi Arabia. Um, but the, the net effect of this is they used it, the Assad's or Assad used it to protect single-party rule. He had a massive security force set up that could harass, incarcerate, kill anyone who was a critic of the government, Uh, They could uh, and did curtail the activities of political advocacy organizations, pro-democracy groups, minority Mm. rights groups, those sorts of things. Now, all of that only ended after Syria was swept up in the Arab Spring uh, in 2011, which we'll talk about um, in an upcoming episode, probably. Where are we at with time? 54. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. so, uh, just as a to, to as, a, as a preempt for the next episode, uh, in June of two thousand, Hafez finally succumbed to a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, not bad. From eighty three, he got another seventeen years out of it, but uh, and he needed bad.
0: that time to get his son ready because. Like you said, this guy was going to be a doctor in London. Obviously, he had to join the military. He had to do a lot of other things. He had to um, learn a whole bunch of stuff in a very short time. And uh, yeah, so his father needed every moment he could get to get him ready.
1: And it turns out they uh, needn't have worried with reducing the limit to be the age limit to be president because in June of Uh, 2000, Bashar would have been 35, would have been one year over. Um, So there you go. Okay. Uh yeah so in June of 2000 Bashar al-Assad succeeds his father as president and the head of the Syrian regional branch of the Ba'ath Party and note the timing of this this is just before
0: 9/11 mm.
1: a year yep. before 9/11
0: now I had read somewhere that uh, there were a lot of people who were hoping for opportunities with the with the son coming into power. Um, supposedly he was going to. Um, we're we're going to get into this next time. But but you've got to think there was an opportunity if he was even partially sincere in easing up. On the, on, the, on, on the people of his country, maybe having a dialogue with the West or whatever, or just not de facto keeping the same policy, policies as his father. You've got the Arab Spring or whatever when people are demanding more. And again, we'll get into this le- next time. You've got to think that all that had to be ruined, uh, what, what potentially could have happened, who knows. You have 9-11 comes along and you have America's reaction to 9-11. So anything that could have happened is going to be washed away, but that's probably going to be in the next episode
1: it is well uh, yeah in the next episode we're going to talk about Bashar and we will finally be getting into the Arab Spring people hallelujah 11 episodes it will have taken us to get to the Arab Spring but I hope you like me think it's going to be worth it I mean I guess hopefully what I hope hopefully what I hope it's not very good English but i all speak it English very good um, what I hope you've taken away from all of this, as I have, is that whatever's going on in Syria today, it has been for the last six or so years,
0: mm-hmm.
1: is going to be impacted and compounded by this history. You should know at this point that Syria has been involved in internal and external conflicts for its entire history uh right. you know particularly since the the French mandate created it in the sort of 40s and um, there are a lot of uh, sectarian tensions there are genuine tensions between the Sunni and the Shia and the Alawites and the Druze and the Kurds, um, who we'll talk about in upcoming episodes um, so there are genuine sectarian tensions there are genuine, Uh, uh, divisions of power and control between the Alawites and the majority of the country so there are religious reasons for tensions there are sort of uh, uh, socioeconomic division reasons for the tensions then you have the role of Syria in the world, its enemies in Israel Israel's supporter like the United States or Saudi Arabia Um, And we haven't even talked about ISIL yet, which will come up in a future episode. The creation of ISIL after the U.S. went in and took a big dump in the middle of Iraq and then walked away. Uh, ISIL was created out of the remnants initially of Saddam's uh, Sunni military. We'll get into that. Um, So... What it will do, I think, is when we we get to the Arab Spring, you will realize that even though the Arab Spring did genuinely seem to start as a local issue, a a, a protest Mm -hmm. against uh, brutality by Bashar's security forces, it quickly spiraled out of control. Well, it quickly grew. And then a bunch of different... Interested parties from around the world got involved, including Turkey, including Russia, who we'll talk about, the United States, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Lebanon, uh, all of these. And then you've got ISIS and Al-Qaeda, of course. and So you've got all of these different players that mm-hmm. have an interest in either regime change in Syria or in supporting and maintaining the Assad regime. Yeah, all and these
0: complexities... I'm sorry, I apologize.
1: No, no, it's right.
0: No, just like, like you are saying, all these complexities that Syria has to deal with, that Bashar has to deal with, other people are going to see... the Other peoples are going to see them as opportunities, and they are going to strike while they can.
1: Yeah, and we will see how the United States internally have been talking about overthrowing the assads in Syria, going way, way back, but at least going back to the... Early nineties, we'll have a five-star general uh, tell us that uh, in in an upcoming episode. That, but looking for the right opportunity, as you say. Uh, So, yeah, kind of one of the reasons I want to do this, and one of the things that bothers me is I hear people online and in, in, you know, face-to-face conversations massively oversimplify. What's going on in Syria? On one hand, you say people. I hear people say, "Well, it's all religious sectarian violence." Um, on the other hand, I've heard people say, "Oh, this is all about the U.S. wanting control. This is all about access to you know gas pipelines uh, from Qatar, or it's all about this or that or the other." I believe that the truth is it's far more complex than these sorts of oversimplifications, these pithy little one-line sound bites that... And I've seen YouTube videos that people have sent me that, again, try and oversimplify it. Yes, gas pipelines are an issue. Yes, the US wanting to overthrow the Assads is an issue. Yes, Israel is an issue. But yes, sectarian violence is a real thing, and it goes all the way back to 632 with the Sunni-Shia divide, plus the Alawites, then we have the Kurds and the Druze. Like, all of these things... Are a factor. There's a lot of different ingredients in terms of what's going on in there. And to, if you oversimplify it, you're not doing it or yourself any justice. So I hope through the course of the last 10 hours, uh, you've started to get some sort of an inkling of how fucking messy and complex this is and all of the people that are responsible for that mess. And uh, then we'll, as we walk into the mess in the next few episodes, you're going to right. understand some, you know, in, in, in excruciating detail now the, the, the background behind how we got there in the first place.
0: Right. And like we said, I don't know how many episodes ago, it takes a certain amount of courage to want to know the truth, to face the truth. And that's what we're trying to do here. So just stick with us.
1: All right, man.